0: of what it means to be one of the sector's critically important, yet least understood roles, while giving honest answers to our profession's most difficult questions. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Here's your host, author, fundraiser, and master trainer, Jason Lewis.
1: Hi, podcast listeners. This is Jason Lewis, and I am your host for the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I want to thank you for joining us today for the show that is shaping the way that the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Before I introduce today's guest, I do want to thank our sponsor, QBAC. QBAC is a next-generation advancement solution that reimagines alumni engagement to increase major planned and principal giving. QBAC acts as a force multiplier for fundraisers, enabling them to focus on what they do best, developing deep relationships with prospects and cultivating them into lifelong donors. QBAC automates the qualification process beyond simple scoring to ensure that your fundraisers have the best prospects. QBAC also uncovers actionable insights about current and future prospects to help fundraisers develop personalized cultivation strategies. Start closing bigger gifts in less time by going to www.cubac.com to schedule a free demo. Also, how about being our next host for the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow? I'm looking forward to two things this summer, getting back to the ballpark with my kids and getting the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow back on the calendar. If your organization would like to be a host location, let's schedule a time to chat. The Responsive Fundraising Roadshow provides six hours of the best fundraising training out there based on Responsive's for sense-making tools. Hosting Responsive's Roadshow is not like hosting a major conference that requires months of planning and all types of resources. All we need you to do is provide us with a safe learning environment for 25 adult professionals in your community who want to understand how highly effective fundraising really works. There is no cost to your organization, and we will reimburse you for all related expenses. If your organization would like to host the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow in your community, reach out and let's have a conversation today. Hi, Angie. I am delighted to have you on the Fundraising Talent Podcast today. Uh, it has been quite some time since you're, you've been on the pod. I, I bet it's been 100 episodes since we had you on here last, and I am delighted to uh, have you back Uh, I remember you and I met while I was up in uh, in the pre we'll call it the pre-pandemic sort of world Uh, I was up in Toronto during a workshop and we had the pleasure of meeting Um, how about we ask uh, you to introduce yourself to our listeners
2: Uh, well it's it's great to be back again Um, um, my name is Angie Turnbull and I live in Brantford Ontario Canada home of Wayne Gretzky I tell people Uh, My current position is the Director of Philanthropy for the Lansdowne Children's Center Foundation. And what the Lansdowne Children's Center is, is a children's treatment center for children 19 and under who have, um, through no fault of their own, have some sort of a diagnosis of special needs.
1: And Angie, tell us how the uh, you you were just telling me that you folks are still in lockdown. Here we are in late mm-hmm. May, and <laughs> you're still in lockdown for what sounds like a couple of weeks. But how has the uh, in, in, in which is tragic in my opinion? Uh, that, mm-hmm. That's I, I can't I can't imagine, but uh, but I, perhaps I can. Um, but uh, how has the pandemic treated you all up there?
2: Well, I I, I know that. We, we all would agree that this has been a, a challenge personally and professionally. I mean, human beings are not meant to be locked in their homes and not being able to engage with one another and socialize and participate in sports and go to the theater, go to art galleries. So it's been a professional and personal challenge for all of us. We're in our third lockdown. I think this one has been the hardest because we were in a partial lockdown last summer and we're in a full lockdown right now. They're starting to open things up. They just opened up golf. They just opened up tennis courts, uh, but a lot of things are still closed. None of our stores are open unless it's a grocery store or a drugstore. store. We're, we're told to stay at home and not go to other cities. So, not being able to see family uh friends uh not going not working in my in my usual environment working from home so yeah it's it's definitely a challenge Mm -hmm. a mental challenge
1: yeah yeah yeah,
2: you you, you learn to love netflix that's all i have to say
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah i i i I definitely think that that we're all going to come out on the back end of this much more adaptable. And I like to think that fundraisers in particular, um, I've always thought that fundraising professionals are quite adaptable folks. um, Mm -hmm. And that we, um, I think a lot of us, whatever our life experiences are and whatever uh, prior work experiences and life experiences we sort of bring to the table, there's something about most fundraisers that I have met Bring a certain degree of adaptability and I think all of that has been tested in the midst of this Absolutely, um, you know mm. story after story after story lately we've been hearing lots of reports um I- I'd say you know good probably every other podcast episode is is, is someone sort of telling the less the you know the hard the hard-earned hard-earned lessons that were particularly valuable for them. Is there a lesson you think you've learned about, is there anything that sort of sits at the top of your list? You're like, we're going to, that's a lesson we've learned. And we're going to, that we're going to hold on to that one for a long time.
2: Well, the reason that I was speaking with you the other day was um, um, the the lesson that I would say, Candace, I work with a lovely uh, young lady, the senior development officer that runs all of our events. I think the lesson that we learned through all of this
1: yeah,
2: is that the reason that we fundraise for our children with special needs, their their special needs didn't suddenly go away because of COVID. Uh, right. All of the all the reasons that we were fundraising did not change. It actually we we needed to do more virtual therapy. So we had a different different needs for our funding, but we learned that it we learned that it can still be done. And that you just have to, the word pivot, which is like everybody's favorite word now is pivot, pivot, pivot.
1: Right. Um,
2: We we looked at one another and said, well, we just have to figure this out. I mean, I know about you, I don't know about you, but in all the courses I ever took in fundraising, I never did a webinar that said how to do fundraising in a pandemic 101. I never took
1: that course.
2: And so... We In March of 2020, um, I had just written our budget and our business plan for the fiscal year of 2020 to 2021. I had just written it. Written it. it went to the board and it was approved. And within two weeks, um, all of a sudden in Canada, I can't remember the date. I think it was March 17th. Yeah, uh, yeah. We, went into, we went into this full-blown pandemic shutdown and I remember when it first happened we were really frightened like I I can tell you we were all very frightened because this seemed to come out of nowhere at us and I just said to Candace my development officer oh my goodness now what you know now what do we do and I think we were all in that boat um uh, we were all, I know people that lost their jobs and a lot of foundations really suffered. Um, and there was like a panic that went through the whole industry, especially in Canada. There was a panic because businesses support what we do. Uh, government government supports what we do. And this pandemic was going to affect everyone in every, every amount. So uh i just remember um that panic that that hit us but still realizing that at the end of the day our kids with special needs never give up and and we couldn't give up we would have to just you know buckle down and we would have to just figure out a, a different way to do it but the reason i wanted to speak with you jason is that i owe you a huge debt of gratitude for that because when i came to your seminar in toronto we talked about this uh you gave me cards to take back to my board meeting. And in the one card, the one card. remember we talked about this. It looked like a track. It looked like running around a track. And I felt if our foundation was always on the outside, we were always on the outside, which was primarily, we were very event driven uh, versus being on the inside of the track where there was a lot more one-on-one donor engagement, donor solicitation. And, I took those um, cards back to the board. It it was like a snowball effect. So what happened after that? We we managed to secure a second staff member, Candace, who's amazing, and she started to take over all the events, which allowed me to then diversify the other platforms, which was increase the solicitations to grants and foundations. Uh, come up with a corporate philanthropy package to go to all the businesses in the community. Um, we send out information about legacy giving to all of our accountants, investment advisors, and um, lawyers to say, if you have a client thinking about a planned gift, consider us. Um, we did a second mail-out campaign, which we'd never done before. So we did one in the spring and one at Christmas. And we actually approached all of the people that had sponsored our events and uh, participated in our events and pledged our events and really pulled them to being just a regular donor. But it was because of going to your seminar that this all was like a snowball and it all happened. And when I look at it, I think to myself, somebody up there was thinking about us saying...
1: (laughs) (laughs) You know
2: what, you girls, something's about to happen right now in the world and you better be ready. So we started planning all of this diversifying of our platforms so that, this is the good news story, is that we launched our our fiscal year in December, in March of 2020, and we had a whole year to to hit our target. And do you know we hit our target in December? Because right, right. we had diversified the platforms and we had gone about asking for funding in different ways. And we really went after it for individual donor support. And contrary to what people believe, uh, donors felt bad for charities during the pandemic. They knew we were suffering. They knew that we still needed to raise money. They were at home with no disposable income, they couldn't go anywhere. They couldn't go out for dinner. They couldn't go buy new clothes or a new boat. So there was a huge support for charities. Um, I know I, I'm on other webinars in the U S and I've heard that even in the United States, the, the donor was adding a zero to their donations.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what that, <clears throat> I, I- I, did, I, did, I certainly didn't foresee. We've been teaching those three lanes for several years now, and, and I certainly could not have foreseen the, um, the pandemic. But one of the things I did see, and I think all of us have seen this if we've been around, you know, unless we were hiding in a cave for the last several decades and not raising money. But if, if you think about that outer lane, that outer lane of fundraising activity basically is the lane that lets you down when the world gets messy and unpredictable. Yes. And so and so if you think back on September 11th and if you think back um during the recession it's that same lane and and that's the stuff that we teach in that seminar that you attended whatever the whenever the world and the marketplace sort of tanks the stock market sort of bottoms out and the consumer confidence sort of hits another low and you know, all those, all those things that we've sort of just as a society sort of expected to happen in our economy as it moves up and down like a roller coaster. Sometimes what I was, what I, what I was trying to convey when we created those three lanes was how do you conceptually train up an organization to kind of think through, okay, all that fundraising activity that generally happens in that outermost lane also tends to be what is most vulnerable to the swings in our economy. And so subsequent to that seminar, if I'm, if I'm understanding the story correctly, subsequent to that seminar, you went back and you essentially created a buffer zone. Mm -hmm. Um, You put a buffer between the, what, what is the more vulnerable place out there. And, and it's all fundraising activity that eventually will come back. And I mean, we're, we're going to see, you know, you'll see events going back on the calendar here soon enough. And, uh, you know, all of the things that we would do in that outermost lane will will continue to be utilized and 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 they'll continue to evolve. But they're always going to let us down when the world is sort of letting us down. Does that make sense?
2: Totally makes sense. And I think that our number one fundraiser that we'd had for 20 years that really was sustaining the organization uh, was 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 a somewhat of a third party. And the gentleman that was running that, I knew he was going to retire. You know, events often have an expiration date. And yes. I could see that expiration date coming. Yes. And the board was asking, well, what are the plans? And it was well. Wow, we need to start acting like a foundation that has a diversified platform. That's the way I say. It. But lots of ways to give, lots of ways to to support, and also understanding that I I felt, and, and Candace and I both agreed that that events are great. They 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 build the brand. They make um, great awareness about your organization. But at the end of the day. Um, the people that participate in your event or pledge your event are not necessarily what was the donor we were looking for. We, we, the donor we really needed was the parents and the grandparents of the children who use our services and are grateful for what we do for their child. So we created a different event. I think I told you this that we created the heroes' walk and roll with all the little kids and they all come dressed as heroes and their parents come dressed as heroes and we bring the community together and that if that's a better event, a better donor base for us. but but yeah, it's funny. it's funny how it all worked out. I, I wasn't doing this buffer. I wasn't doing this buffer because of a pandemic. I was doing a buffer because I knew we were going to lose this event. But as it turned, as it turns out, wow, God worked in mysterious ways because this buffer that I had put in ended up helping sustain us through something that none of us ever could have imagined um, the ramifications of, of what this has been. And I'm still, I'm still in it. Like I'm, I still feel everybody was like, just get through 2020 and we'll be okay. And I thought to myself, especially here in Canada, no, we're, we're not okay. We're still, we're still not okay.
1: The, um, that visual, the three lane visual is actually not, um, it does go, we do call it the three lanes, but it's actually based on a visual by a guy, um, A sociologist. By the, a lot of my regular listeners have heard me reference Edward Hall. He was a sociologist in the 1960s who created, ironically, as we're relating this all to the pandemic, he created these rings of distance. They were literally sort of the, they were the social distance between you and other people. And so each of those rings was sort of an arms length, or two arms lengths, or three arms lengths. And so, if you think about if you sit at the center of those three lanes that we've created on that visual card, you can sort of see the distance that that group that's in that outermost lane tends to also be those people for which we have the greatest distance between ourselves. And what Hall was talking about was context. And so, um, anybody who has written has anybody who has ever written about high context versus low context relationships when the environment changes as it has in the midst of this pandemic you you rely on a different context so you start to rely on higher context relationships you start to trust them because you the low context relationships those relationships that perhaps we have out in the marketplace and the you know people who are just sort of acquaintances and acquaintance acquaintances in our daily lives and those 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 so forth those aren't people that we can generally count on and so when we when we have to hunker down, when we have to hunker down and sort of rely on people who are closer to us, which is what all these organizations did, um, and it's the context that you reached out for, as you were describing just a few minutes ago, the parents that used to, you know, the people who sort of had that one additional layer of intimacy and that one additional reason to give to the organization than just say the general citizen out in the community that's a layer of context that you wanted to have the benefit of am am i am i describing that correctly
2: absolutely and i have to say the other thing about the pandemic so i'm i'm at home i'm working from home alone i'm i'm an empty nest and my husband runs his own company and he's been gone um so i'm home alone and um not being able to chat Like, I think I I invite the Amazon driver in for tea so I can at least have a discussion with him. But but the one one thing that happened is um, having someone looking after my outside lane, let me come into the inside lane. And during the pandemic, uh, picking up the phone and talking to donors a lot more than I ever have. And what an eye-opening pleasure that was. Um, Donors really, they want to talk because they're in the same boat as, as myself. And with that being said, the stories... Of who are you and why do you support the organization and uh, success stories that I'm hearing, you know, like my, my grandson had such trouble speaking. We are really worried about him going into school and we, he came to Lansdowne and his verbiage is wonderful now and he's excelling in school. And that's why I want to give back to the organization. So coming, you know, in a bit of a dark place here by myself and picking up the phone And hearing these impactful, uplifting, motivating stories um, as a fundraiser when you are in a kind of tough time, it just kept us going. It it definitely did. uh, I I haven't
1: I haven't talked to anyone about this on the podcast in quite some time, but I kind of wonder, I've got Angie, I've got this 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 next book sort of simmering in my head and I want to write it, it's not about fundraising it's about why the nonprofit sector exists as a whole so we, we tend to we tend to think that the nonprofit sector exists primarily for the purposes of fulfilling our mission um and those that we serve but has has it occurred to you so I, i've heard that i've heard that that people are picking up the phone and or have been picking up the phone and has it occurred to you in the midst of this pandemic that in some ways the nonprofit sector also exists for the people that enable you to do, do the serving just as much as it is the people that you serve like you, your your organization gave that person that's on the other end of that phone who probably writes you guys a check you know every month or once a year or whatever you're giving them a sense of identity and meaning and purpose in the world at a time when they critically need it. And I think I sometimes I think the nonprofit sector and sometimes I think our individual organizations sort of forget that it's one thing to serve that young man in the classroom. It's a completely another to see our, our, our role in the community much more holistically and also see our role towards those people who enable us to do that service for that young man. Does that make sense?
2: Oh, I think okay, so what I'm what I'm hearing and correct me if I'm wrong yeah. is that okay, I'll I'll put it simple like yeah, yes, we we provide the service, but then I mitigate the opportunity for the parent or the grandparent to to show some appreciation and give back, so they're able to do a donation. It makes them feel great. It makes the donor that that donor center that whatever that they they feel yeah good. Yeah, yeah they ha- they have a they have a purpose. They feel that they've been part of they're... now that now they're brought into the story and they're part of the story. And as a fundraiser, and I think I told you this before. I mean, I came from the profit world, and I was in sales and advertising, and I loved it. But when I had the opportunity to come into a profession that did make a difference and give back so looking at it like that all the players all the players that are sitting at the table the children that are getting the service the therapist the fundraiser and the donor are all working together sharing a meal at the table that they're all enjoying That's that's good that means something to all of them
1: yeah, that's a beautiful, uh, it's a beautiful uh, uh, visual way to see that. That's what, um, oh, his, his name, uh, Alexander, so there's a professor, he's in Canada, uh, he's a Canadian and he wrote, uh, he, he's written a theory, it's it's called psychosocial integration. It's the idea that we as human beings have to be socially integrated into our worlds in order to thrive and if you look at the way that modern society works, that those places where we're integrated into our communities tend to be the nonprofit organizations. And so if, if nonprofit organizations don't see themselves as existing, not just for that young man at the table, for whom your mission statement points to, but for those other three people, yourself included, um, if we don't see ourselves as having this sort of this holistic purpose we sort of miss the opportunity to perhaps even get our jobs done really well. I mean, when you yep. see it when you see it as well as you just described it having all four of those people around the table, it starts to make your job as a fundraiser far far much it's far more compelling because you're not pulling them, you know, you're not sort of persuading them to come to the table. You're already recognizing that they're at the table. And then Mm -hmm. fundraising and giving of their time and volunteering their skills or whatever Mm -hmm. they're, you know, volunteering on the board or so forth. Um, In many ways, we're sort of creating these tables of opportunity to sort around a common need, a common good, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. a common concern. Yeah,
2: I I, I, mean, as me as a fundraiser, but I walk the walk. So I'm I'm a monthly donor to three other organizations besides my own and when i when i personally see how my donor dollars have worked and i've had conversations with the organizations it makes me i just makes me feel good that at the end of the day that my paycheck's gone and worked to do the greater good i mean to me i think that's why a lot of us join this profession is that we want to do the great. We realize there's a, um, a seat at the table that's not being filled and that is the funding. So that's why we're all sitting there and that's why it works like that, that expression, it takes a village. Um, and if, you know, I, I often just think that, and I've, I've read so much about it is that if every person in the world only just gave a certain amount of dollars we probably would be not even needing as many charities as we have um and that's a concept i can't understand how people can't give when there's so much there's so many good great reasons to give so
1: see i think um so so this author uh a lot of what he's talking about is not a whole lot different than what a lot, a lot of us are reading Brene Brown's books and, and yes. what, Brene, what, what Brene Brown talks a lot about is this notion of belonging and, and psychosocial mm-hmm. integration and belonging mm-hmm. are largely the same thing. And what you're describing with those seats at the table, I think it's so much, and this, this is my pushback when, when people talk about some of these, you know, donor-centered stuff and donor love and all that sort of stuff. It, it's so mm-hmm. much, in my mind, it's so much more than making them feel good. It's making yeah. them feel like they belong at the table. Yes. And so yes. It's not. It's not just this sort of this consumer experience of having gone to, you know, gone to the supermarket and buy a fancy box of cereal and feel good about what you purchased. It's about yeah. actually. It's about actually feeling like there's been a seat reserved for them, and, and and then going back to the lanes. If you think about what you did prior to the pandemic, when you move into those inner lanes. It, it becomes all the more feasible for you to actually create those seats, if you will, because you yes. can't, you can't create that many seats for that, for the number of donors that are typically in that outer lane out there, you're, you're, you can't create that many seats and you create, you can't create the, the meaningfulness of what it means to belong. You just can't, Mm-hmm. You know, with with thousands of donors that are coming through our direct response programs, for example, you cannot create a an experience in my mind that's going to essentially equate to feeling like they're at the table there with you as you described it. But when you when you narrow down to a smaller population um, and then the the other thing, and I talk about this in the forthcoming book, is when you invite them to the table. And I and I hope you saw this in the midst of the pandemic. I'm guessing you did. Did you did you find that it was more comfortable on you that you were more confident in raising the expectation of those donors to perhaps give in more meaningful ways?
2: Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Because yeah, just just in the discussions of like you and I've had is that um, the our whole our whole way of doing business quote, quote unquote shifted. So yeah.
0: take,
2: taking the donor out for coffee, for lunch, dropping by, having the conversation. I live in a small town of 100,000 people. I'm blessed that I run into my donors on the grapefruit aisle, you know, right. because right. I, we're all out. We're all out and about seeing them on the golf course, seeing them out for dinner. Always, every time I see someone, it's like, how's Lansdowne going? And, you know, um, this incredible shift. That socialization, as we knew it, changed, and it drastically Im- impacted the way we do business. So there, they were very cognizant about the fact that I'm obviously not out there doing the events like I used to, and and there's all kinds of press um, about it in in, uh, in uh, everywhere. So yeah, they uh, they uh, my my discussion with them is. You need to understand, and, and it 's truthful that our children with special needs that did not change, and we heard from parents that they some of the kids were desperate to get on the computer for that virtual therapy to be engaged because a child with a special needs no different than another another child they want to be with their friends, they want the engagement they want to be part of a group, they want to be part of something bigger. And they're at home and they don't understand why. And they're not coming to Lansdowne and they're not seeing us. And it was really difficult. And it was like, okay, well, now we got to raise money to get kits delivered to their homes so they can participate in recreation. And we're going to do it. We're going to do it on zoom meetings with all these kids. And we're going to teach them how to paint over zoom. And we literally had to pivot and do that. And so for the donors, I sent pictures to the donors of our kids doing all of this virtually to say, you're still making a difference. We're still making it happen. Our kids are still being supported even through these difficult times because you didn't give up on us. You stayed with us. And you stayed with us in some cases in in a much larger uh, capacity.
1: Did you you notice that their guard... Did you notice that their guard was down? I I, I I tend to hear, as as I'm talking to individuals like yourself who were on the phone in the midst of this pandemic, that they're basically saying that people's guard was down. So they were answering the phone, they were calling us back, and they were perhaps having much longer, much more richer yes. conversations. Oh,
2: yes. I had a pile yeah. full of people that I wanted to call, and yeah. I got through two people in an hour. Well, I'm a talker anyways. I'm a bit of a. I have a gift of the gab i'm sorry i i love to talk especially now um yeah but yeah because do you want to know why a a lot of these calls lasted a long time because i'm talking to a lot of seniors that were feeling um frightened because of their age and they were missing their family and they were missing their kids and they were all too willing not just to talk about my organization uh, on on our children and and what we're doing, they wanted to tell me about their life and what it had been and you know, as a fundraiser, I think that's um we have to do we a good fundraiser will listen actually more than talk, so you know and understand and be um apathetic to their situation and et cetera and so, yeah, I found they were m- much more engaging and um because all of a sudden we were in this boat together i wanted to just touch a touch back to about donor love of course as a fundraiser you love your donors i mean how can you not love your donors that's what they do they sustain sure. your organization however sure. however um but my donors and volunteers just like you said there's so much more than that they are i i Have now described them as our extended family. Um, So sitting at the table now, they're the cousins, the aunts, the uncles. So they're the extended family. They are our team, and our volunteers. Our volunteers couldn't. uh, We have had some key volunteers. One of my our former directors of the organization retired to travel. She can't travel so she came right back into the door and looked at and looked at us and said what do you need done her help over covid has been instrumental um and so love my volunteer oh my goodness i owe that lady my kidney she has been unbelievable so yeah it's it's love respect appreciation acknowledgement um Uh, you know, it's, and there's an expression, you know, it's so it's really hard to get a donor, but it's really easy to um, lose a donor. So the other thing that we did, because we we were home, we wrote a thank you card for practically everything. And we wrote a thank you card to a gentleman. And he came into my office and he said back in the fall when I was still there, Why did you send me this thank you card? And I said, well, you must be in my donor system. You must have pledged Uh something or participated. And he had actually, all he had done was to pledge someone in an event. But I sent him a thank you card. And he was so overwhelmed with the thank you card that at Christmas, he showed back up at the the center with 60 backpacks for children to be given away as gifts. Yes. So sometimes too, I know we get caught up for me, like we get caught up thinking fundraising is all about a dollar, but we see so much happen at Christmas for our children, especially our children who, um, who come from single families, etc. And those donations, they they're the ones that make me cry. They, they pull up my heartstrings more than anything to see clothes and toys and and how happy the parents are for the support. And that all came from a, a, a thank you card for a twenty-five dollar pledge. So
1: that so I think, Angie, I think I think a lot of people, my 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 uh my read on the um on the fundraising experiences for a lot of our colleagues over the last year and a half has been that by necessity they 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 almost ha- were forced into that middle lane so they were forced into having more high context relationships albeit over you know at a distance they still had more they had more meaningful conversations with donors that they had they had more, more meaningful conversations than perhaps than some of some of us have even ever had in our entire careers and 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 I guess what my question is is how are we going to now guard what has evidently, just listening to you, what is very evidently extraordinarily meaningful work, how are we going to guard ourselves to the point where we don't drift back into that outermost lane where all that efficiency and predictability is?
2: Well, and I, I think it's not just, I, I honestly think it's not just work. I when I I've had a lot of conversations with people that say I don't know if I ever want it to go completely back to normal it I don't know if you know I just feel like there was a huge shift and that somebody put on the brake to the world to say you know what guys you need to slow down you know Stop, stop your polluting stop everybody being on the highway stay at home. Stay with yeah. your family, plant a garden, get out on the trails. And so it is a concern. You know, it's like being on a diet. You're on a diet for two months. Oh, you, you really want to keep that good eating. You don't want to fall. And yeah, that is a concern. That's a concern that we're just going to, you know, we're we we're a species that forgets quickly, unfortunately, Very. sometimes. Yes. And yes. so... Um, yeah, so I can, could, I can, yeah,
1: I can, I can, I I can vouch for that. I've been in the, so I'm traveling here in the U S for the last several weeks. And I can tell you having traveled through the Charlotte, the Atlanta, the Dallas and several other airports that they have plenty of people have forgotten that we, we have been in a pandemic for the yes. last year. I yes. <laughs> so. Because,
2: because we just, and the other thing is because we were robbed of so much we, we, it's almost like we want to make up for it, you know, like I'm going to go on that cruise. Now I'm going on two cruises, not one cruise, you know, because I miss this and I miss that. So that we went back to a simpler life. Um, I, I remember going to the grocery store when the pandemic first started and the whole aisle of flour was gone because all of a sudden people became pioneers and they were baking. And in Canada, you cannot find wood. Mulch is sold out because people are gardening. So we've come back to a 1950s kind of lifestyle almost, um, which is not such a bad thing, to be honest with you. So do I, I hope, and I don't think Candace and I, I hope I never go back to the way I was before. I hope I realize that at the end of the day, the most important thing about my job is to to talk to my donors, which I used to hear at Congress all the time, right? Talk to donors, talk to donors, talk to donors. And it was almost like, a, yeah, 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 put that on a box. Check that box off when you get all your mailing out and your event done and your board stuff done. But at the end of the day, it was the most important thing during the pandemic.
1: Well, you have to put, um, so, uh, The more people get their heads wrapped around these three lanes, that that first lane, because it's driven by volume and efficiency, and it will always, I call it a jealous lane. So it will always absorb, if there's energy to be had, if if there's time on your schedule to be had, it will suck as much of it as it possibly can. And so what you ultimately have to do is you have to say, okay, lane one can contribute X. And we don't want it to contribute any more than that. And so you have to put a constraint on it. And I think that's what, if you think about what you just described about our society as a whole, our whole society was just allowing lane one, whatever lane one meant in all different respects of our life, we just, uh, were are allowing it to run on overdrive mm-hmm. and, and all of a sudden, lane one got shut down. All those, the, all those highly predictable, highly efficient, high volume things that we did in life, all of a sudden sort of said, you can't do this stuff anymore. You can't go to Walmart and shop all day long. You can't go to the mm-hmm. shopping mall. Um, mm-hmm. and, you, and you may not even have as much money in your checking account. And so all of these things that were sort of conditioned on volume and efficiency get, get put on pause. And you have to rely on that higher quality and ultimately you find that when you lean on those higher quality relationships I had a guy Angie I had a guy at the uh, at the uh, the uh, the naval academy the Naval Academy here on the podcast about six six or eight weeks ago and he was saying to me that they cut during the pandemic they cut their portfolios in half and basically raised the same amount of money mm-hmm so they so they did essentially what you did they moved into an inner lane they moved into a a higher context relationship with people and they raised and they raised the same dollars because the expectations because what comes with that high, what what comes with that high context relationship is also uh, higher expectations and I don't think enough of us when you were you're you're referring to congress and the idea that we go to congress and everybody says have relationships with your with your donors I don't think enough of us have experienced what it means to be in high context relationship with our donors and mm-hmm. consequently fi- and consequently find greater freedom mm-hmm. in in having high expectations, I don't think a lot of us know how to high, have high expectations of our donors. Does mm-hmm. that make sense?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think not understand and you know, understanding the psyche of, of of why a donor gives, and that's the question I always ask them. So, what? Why did you support the organization today? It's a, just an open ended question. And do you have a relationship? I couldn't believe how many people didn't even have a relationship. Just knew knew about the work that we were doing in the community and knew that we were a diamond in the rough needed needing to be support didn't had never had a child or a grandchild with special needs come to to use our facility but they knew who we were and what we did um, which was wonderful to to have conversations with uh, individuals like that yeah it was it was really good yeah, no, that out that outside lane, I'm so glad I came. I just, when I think back to <laughs> it right now, and that's why I thought to myself, I'm going to get in touch with Jason because he would be so proud to know
1: <laughs> that I got
2: rid of, I, I really toned down that outside lane and said, we got to, we, we, you know, it's like, and as it worked out, we had a whole year to hit our target. We had from March until March. And maybe if we'd stayed in the, lo- in the outside lane, That's how long it would have taken. But oh no, we moved into the inside lane and we got around the track a lot faster and hit our target in December.
1: Right. So you and I met, you and I met in, I think it was January or February of 2019. Yes. Um, And you're saying that you guys moved in, you moved into those inner lanes in March, starting in March of that year. And it wasn't, and it was a year later. That the pandemic hit you, yes, and it, yes, and 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 that's that. I think that I think is part of what we have to begin to communicate to our boards. Yes. Uh, people are always people are always saying to me, you know, what do we say to our boards and our bosses? Well, if your boards and your bosses do not see that 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 investment of time you spent a year ahead of time, not knowing that that middle lane <laughs> was going was to work yeah. for you,
2: yeah. I spent a year it, getting ready for a pandemic. I didn't know was going to hit. So, right. Yeah.
1: Right. Right. And, and I got to say, that's probably the biggest affirmation of my word. That's probably going to make my week. So, so um, I I, yeah. I
2: don't know if you know, like, do you know, I, I'm sure, you know, Kathy man uh, up here in um, Toronto and, and she, uh, we talk, we talk about the low lying fruit. All right.
1: Right. And right, boards, right.
2: Boards tend to like that low lying fruit sometimes. Like, They get so event, they think that events are the only ways to make money. And sometimes I worry about that. Um, And it's not. And you and I both know that that outside line isn't. And she had a great expression. Like every time they say, let's do this or let's do that, then you respond back. Well, what would you like me to take out of the plan? Because, you know, once you decide on your once you decide on those giving platforms and diversify, you must stay committed to it and you mustn't add anything on that doesn't have a strategic sound reason for adding it. So, you know, legacy giving, I know in the U.S., legacy giving in universities is huge. I mean, it sustains and hospitals, Um you know, and having and having that conversation is an easy. That's another thing. Is I find having that conversation easy. Somebody kind of thought I was a bit morbid. How can you talk about death? I'm not talking about death. I'm talking about. I'm not unless they've figured out how they're going to stay on the planet forever. I don't know that yet. I hope I can figure that out. But how how do you how do you make an impactful gift? And that's an inside lane conversation that could that could sustain that outside lane for years to come.
1: Are so. you thinking about sometimes um, <clears throat> with some of my clients, we talk about how you can move. So sometimes events and all the, all the things that we generally push out to that outermost lane. If you move those same strategies to the inner, inner lane, for, for example, that the, the event can still happen in the middle or the innermost lane, but they tend to be smaller smaller events so yes what 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 it sounds like to me is is if you wanted to um i love i love hearing organizations that tell me that they're they're doing dinner parties with 12 or 15 people around the dinner table people who all generally know each other share a community together perhaps a a board member or trustee is hosting the dinner but again you're that that's taking the event strategy and letting go of the the volume and the efficiency, and moving it into a much more qualitative sort of setting, you're still yeah. hosting an event. It's just sure. It's it's just your cost. You know, with with a lot of our clients, you know, the cost gets shifted to the to the uh, to the trustee and, and yes. their and the, and their family, and they pick up the bill for for hosting dinner. Um, mm-hmm. and you and you, the fundraiser, if you're at that event, you get the benefit of very rich meaningful Convers- conversation
2: you have much better conversations and the 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 one the one person i think about is gail perry and um gail perry is she in north or
1: south carolina she she's, used in, to always, she's in north carolina yes, yes and
2: she used to talk about her porch parties and then she <laughs> used to and, and i'm gonna say it like she would say it. i used to host, host my porch parties and it was just exact and this was pre-covid and she would Host the porch parties, and and x amount of certain people were invited, and you're absolutely right. The quality of the donations that probably came out of that dinner, or that porch party, or that you know garden party, or whatever that may be, would be a quality donor giving a quality gift versus um, doing a walk where the registration's thirty five dollars. And you've got to buy your hot dogs and you've got to rent the clown. Do you know what I'm <laughs> saying? And you've got to buy the t-shirts. And and at the end of the day, um, you're right. It would be much simpler to do that. And I find it more sophisticated, um, a more eloquent, I suppose, um, way to do it. I think you can do both. Uh, absolutely, I think you could do both. We, I'll tell you what was interesting is we're in a silent capital campaign right now. And we were in the middle of just about to launch our uh, feasibility study or our planning study. We don't call it a feasibility study; we call it a planning fl- um, a planning study because we we know sure. it's feasible. And do you know um, we went ahead and did it? We went ahead and did this planning study in COVID. And you know, our consultant told us it was one of the most um, successful planning studies that he'd ever done in COVID. Because people were there on the phone wanting to talk.
1: Yes. It was great. Gave, it was great. I I have um so and that's and I, I would argue that's because you were in the middle lane. So I think one of the mistakes we make with these feasibility studies, and I haven't articulated it this way so much on the podcast, but I think there's a lot of organizations that are stuck in lane one. So they have yeah. this extraordinary volume of relationships, and then they're running out and they're doing feasibility studies. On the notion that they can actually skip lane two, that middle that messy middle lane where you're where you've been in the last two years, as if it could, if, as if they can leap over into the third lane, which is your capital campaign. But essentially, what you're if you're not in, I have said this to clients time and time again. If if you're not in the middle lane. The feasibility study is not going to tell you a lot because you're talking no. to people. You're, you're talking to people who you have almost no relationship with, and yeah. so when you hired this consultant to come in, what he or she had the benefit of is those middle lane relationships that were much more warmed up, much more engaged. There was a lot more. Le- there was a lot more layer to it. And then Mm -hmm. that set, and then that sets you up to move into that inner, innermost lane, that third lane where you're seeing capital campaigns. Um, I'm teaching this, uh, you're warming. I've got a, I've got an event in three weeks at Myrtle beach with a bunch of heads of schools. And I'm probably going to, I'm going to, I could, I could perhaps just play this podcast conversation to them. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) this would, because, because the thing, the thing, I, I don't know if we talked about this when I was in Toronto, Angie, and we'll end up, we'll wrap up on this thought, but that innermost lane that we haven't talked a lot about, um, that innermost lane, if it's serving you well, that's the, that's the third lane, rather than you moving from capital camp, moving in and out of capital campaigns, it allows you just to have a permanent, permanent capital campaign, sort of this, yes. this, permanent, this odd, Yeah, yeah. You're just constantly sort of raising for the future, raising for capital, raising for growth, and so, and so you're kind of bringing the so as you bring relationships into the middle lane, now you can bring you know a select few into that innermost lane, and you can build. You can constantly be thinking, okay, what are we building for the future? Whether it's the next building, whether it's the expansion of a program, or whether it's you know building your endowment. you're always doing. You're always doing that. That most most far-reaching future building um, in that inner lane, and then and then and then what that prevents is that prevents some of this, uh, what I call sort of that roller coaster on and off sort of feeling that capital campaigns oftentimes create. Um, well, I
2: think, like you and I both know that the capital campaign will give you the best. Major gift uh, records in your donor base, like for years to come, and once you've engaged with them once, hopefully they'll stay with you, and maybe you won't need as many events. And what we we did with our corporate philanthropy package is we sent out 250 packs. It's it's beautiful. It it shows how four companies have supported us, but not just supported us in money, volunteering, been on the board, and run third party and i have to say we're trying to get more people to do third party make us your charity of choice dress down day corporate giving that kind of thing that's also sustaining the organization rather than us always doing an doing an event so we have the tim hortons uh, the tim hortons coffee company does smile cookie in canada and uh we get the smile cookie in September and it, it's the most wonderful third party event. It's it's incredible. So
1: I do know the uh the Tim Horton <laughs> coffee yesterday. <indeed. laughs>